As the vintage advertising for Virginia Slim's cigarettes told women, "You've come a long way, baby." Women have carved out a bigger seat at the table over the past seventy years, but we still have challenges when it comes to our voices being heard. Our question this episode: How can women claim their space through confident communication that also builds relationship? Welcome to episode eighty-two of How Can I Say This, where we look to build connection and community through courageous conversations. I'm your host Beth Bilo, and I'm so glad you've joined me today. While this episode is speaking directly to women listeners, what I've learned over the years is that women will not succeed without men also informing themselves and taking up the mantle of feminism. Remember. Feminism simply means the belief that women should have equal rights and access. It's about acknowledging that most of the world lives in a male-dominated culture, and there are intentional steps we need to take to create gender balance in the home, our communities, and in the workplace. That balance benefits everyone, including men, women, and LGBTQ+. So, if you're not a woman, don't assume this episode isn't for you. It's for everyone who cares about hearing from as many voices as possible, in the spirit of creating stronger relationships and communities. With that said, it's my pleasure to introduce Eliza Van Cort, author of the recently released book *A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space: Stand Tall, Raise Your Voice, Be Heard*. Eliza is a Cook House Fellow at Cornell University, an advisory board member of the Performing Arts for Social Change, and the creator of a highly regarded talk commissioned by MIT focused on mentorship and institutionalized racism. She is also on the board of advisors for DEN or DEN, focusing on remote workplace communications, as well as the founder of Central New York's preeminent Meisner Technique Acting Studio, and a student of the arts and political science. Having led a life that any Hollywood studio would immediately dismiss as too hard to believe, she has dedicated herself to empowering women of all experiences and backgrounds to claim space. Van Cort, who joined the chorus of women fiercely proclaiming #MeToo, gave a 2018 TED Talk on women, power, and revolutionizing speech, in which she shared her personal story and offered actionable, transformative tools for real change. You can learn more about Eliza and find links to her resources and her book on the episode webpage at howcanisaythis.com. Hi, Eliza. Welcome to How Can I Say This. It's delightful to welcome you, and congratulations on the launch of your book this week. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here with you. Oh, thank you, thank you. Well, it, like so many books, it starts out with this genesis of a personal story that led to some really profound self awarenesses that are benefiting all of us now. And、um, you were involved in an accident. Mm-hmm. Um, six years ago, that most people would call devastating, <laughs> and that you labeled miraculous. What happened? Let me start there. Just what happened? Absolutely. So I was riding my bike. We're a big cycling family, and、um, somebody decided it was a better idea to drive and text rather than just drive.、Mm-hmm. And they hit me in the head with their car. They violated my right of way, slammed into my car. I always like to say they hit me in the head with their car because it sounds more dramatic. My children are <laughs> like, "Mom, that sounds weird," but I think it's cool.、Um, so, it's like it was weird. I like knew what you meant. <laughs> I got hit in the head with the car. I just like saying, "Yeah." So、um, I went up on the hood of their car, hit one side of my head, got knocked unconscious, got thrown in the middle of a highway, hit the other side of my head, 
Woke up with a bilateral brain injury, a subdural hematoma, which means there was blood in my brain. And I uh, woke up thinking that I had just woken up from the hospital. I vaguely remembered the hospital, but um, it turned out it was a week later. And my memory was completely shot. My uh, communication skills were really poor. And then eventually it got to the point where I would go to bed remembering most of my day, but then I'd wake up and half of my day would be just gone, just shot. And it was scary. And one day I started to think, well, you know, I think I'm getting my memory back. I think I'm doing a little better, but everybody else is acting so strange. And one of my dear friends, we all need that friend who tells it like it is always, no matter what, they will tell you the truth. And my friend came over and I said, you know, Kim, it's so strange because everybody's acting so weirdly. And she said, Eliza, everyone's not acting weirdly. They are responding to you. You Mm -hmm. are acting weirdly and you don't know it. And in that moment, I realized I was so impaired with my communication that not only was I impaired, but I was so impaired, I didn't know I was impaired. And that was particularly scary. And so that began a process of recovery, which if you'd like, I can go into, but which in order to recover, I really had to break down the code of communication to get back to where I was before. And I had to learn to go from an intuitive communicator to a mindful communicator. And and that is where this all sort of started. Wow. That's such an interesting distinction. How do you distinguish between intent? You said intuitive communicator and um, mindful. Yeah. Well, intuitively, I was always a fairly good communicator, but I didn't know why. I didn't know what I, you know, I just did it. But once you can't just do it, you then have to figure out how to do it. So I had to actually, well, I, I, the first thing I did is my very dear friend, Katie said, why don't you write down your day before you go to bed? That way, the next day, even if you forget, you'll have a record. And so, you know, I felt a little like a country that was at war who couldn't remember who started it. And so how can you learn, right? If you don't have a memory of what's happened to you. And so for me, I'd wake, you know, I'd wake up and people often say, you know, we live in the moment. And I always say, you know, live in the moment. And I say, that's really not terribly true. The moment is gone in a second. Mm -hmm. Live so that you can create memories that you learn from and that enrich your life because our life is a collection of memory. The moment, the moment is like one tenth of a second. And if you don't remember those moments, they never impact your life. So for me, I learned a lot about communication by writing everything down before I would go to sleep. And then I started researching. I'm a very hardcore extrovert, but for the first time in my life, being around people tired me. So I would just sit and watch, which was hard and would have been hard. In this case, it wasn't because I was so tired. And I just slowly broke down the code of communication and I learned how to do it mindfully and purposefully. I, I, because I could no longer do it intuitively and naturally. Yeah. Yeah. It was much more of a conscious process. Yeah. Um, and, and folks are listening to us talk, but we have the benefit of seeing one another and I'm looking at your behind you and it's yes. solid words. Yes. And, and, you know, I see that as a testament to like the importance of communication and I see it probably as notes from people. So relationships that are important to you in your life yes. and how much 
things must have shifted as you changed your relationship to yourself, to how you're communicating and then to others. Well, the door you're seeing and people can't see it, but there's a door. It's a white door behind me. I'm in my acting studio. So I have kind of a weird background of political science and theater training. And I've run an acting studio for 20 years. And so this door that you are looking at is where my students sign when they graduate from my program. And there's another door on the other side. In fact, one of these signatures is from my daughter um, (laughs) who took my program. But it's all the people I love, you know. And my Angelou has this wonderful saying that says, um, "I I never go into a room alone because everyone I love is standing with me. And so when the pandemic started, I thought, where do I want to set up my studio? Because all my work is talking to people. And I thought, I want all the people I love behind me. So I set it up in front of this door. (laughs) Beautiful. Oh, that's, that's, that's a gorgeous story. (laughs) Yeah. And those people were there for me after my accident. Yeah. Like you said, we need those truth tellers. Oh yes. Yeah. And we need our communities. I mean, community is so, I, I think we've stressed networking, Mm-hmm. And I don't think we stress community enough. Yeah, which which leads me to a question that's just coming up in the moment around like how communication and community has changed over the past 16 months. You know, I mean, even before the pandemic, because we've been going through, at least here in the United States, a lot of churn about community and connection and relating to one another. What have you observed over the past year about shifts in community and communication? Well, I think there have been two things. One is it's contracted and one is that it has expanded. And what I mean by that is the contraction is if you are not proactive about connection, you will not have it. So there are several different layers of the people we connect with during the day, how we fuel ourselves, even if we're introverts. So One is, you know, our very good friends, our very close friends and family. Then the other is our acquaintances. And then there are strangers and even strangers. And you go to the grocery store and you say, hi, how you doing? You're in the line. You, you, you are physically, if you're an introvert, you don't need to talk to actually get fueled. You can just be with people and you're fueling up. Right. And we didn't get that anymore. So we had to get more of the other stuff. And so if you don't, if you didn't do that proactively, it could be incredibly isolating. And I know people who struggle with that. If you were able to do that proactively, suddenly there's an expansion because being away from someone, quote unquote, stopped mattering because everybody was. So one of my dear friends who I met during the pandemic, I met several people during the pandemic who have become like sisters to me through this whole process of getting my book out there. And one of them is Alma Derricks, who is the CEO of Rev and the former CMO of Cirque du Soleil. And she wrote my foreword and she lives in LA and we've never met. And as we jokingly say, we are in love. <laughs> we're like, we're like <laughs> sisters and yeah. we met and we became really close and it doesn't matter that we're in LA because nobody's seeing each other. And so it's, it's, I hope that those relationships continue to be nurtured afterwards because they have expanded many networks and communities in ways that really didn't feel possible before because it wasn't a necessity before. Yeah. Fascinating. I love that expansion and contraction and, and how much control we have over that. Like we kind of decide whether our world has expanded or contracted. That's right. 
so I want to bring a very timely question to you because this mm-hmm. happened to me last night when I felt like I was trying to expand my world, but in some ways <laughs> I felt like I, I was aware of a contraction too at the same mm. time. So my husband and I finally like had a date night. We went out Ooh. to dinner and we went to a movie, you know, we're, we're fully vaccinated. So You're we were crazy. like, you crazy, kid. We're, we're, we're insane, right? <laughs> like that's just out of control. But we went to see Nomadland, which I recommend. But anybody who's seen it knows that it's kind of a quiet, muted movie. And there were only maybe about 20 people in the theater. And of course, we were pretty spread out. But there happened to be two men sitting about three chairs to my left of me. And they kept up not a continuous stream of commentary, but they, they were talking enough that I was starting to feel myself getting very annoyed. And I kept in my mind imagining going like, shh, you know, or would you please stop talking, Um, you know, something just basically inviting them to be quiet. And I could not bring myself to do it. Instead, Mm -hmm. I sat there in my seat. I squirmed. I would look at them occasionally, like pointedly, but if they saw me, they didn't acknowledge me. I would turn towards my husband. I think at one point I said something like, I wish they would be quiet. And I have to admit that I was sort of hoping he might say something Mm -hmm, (laughs) so mm -hmm. I wouldn't have to, but he didn't seem as bothered by it. And so eventually, I mean, the movie is an hour and 48 minutes and it probably had about 20 minutes left and I finally couldn't take it anymore. And I just got up and moved and I moved back a few rows and off to the side. And I felt sort of annoyed at myself for doing that. I mean, I was glad because I thought I'm just taking care of myself. I'm, you know, I don't have to sit here. I have a choice, but I also felt like I had a choice about like saying something. And so it was easier to move. Mm-hmm. and remove myself mm-hmm. than it was to call them out. Yes. What's up with that? <laughs> yeah. Well, we've been trained. I mean, that I want to tattoo that on my arm. Actually, I don't want to tattoo it, but I want to put it somewhere. And if I'm fortunate enough to do another book, it was easier to move. Mm-hmm. I think that's very powerful. And part of that is because historically it has been easier to move because the repercussions for women for saying anything have been extreme. And there's a chapter in my book called Crazy Feminist B. Well, I'm not going to say the other word, um, but it's about words that have been historically used to silence women and what they mean and why they have been used to silence women. And if you are angry, then you are crazy. If you have an opinion, then you are a B. If you are a feminist, if you are saying, hey, I want equal treatment, then you're a feminist in a pejorative sense. And one example I give of this is when women would complain, would say to their husbands, like, hey, you know, I don't like what you did. There was a time when you could put something called a scold's bridle on a woman for saying that, which is a metal cage that goes over her head with a bit that went in her mouth, which sometimes had little spikes in it, had a little loop in the back. So you could, it was metal (laughs) that you could then attach a rope to. And you could just take her around and show that she had been naughty and had the audacity to talk back to you. They actually did that also to enslaved people in America, if they would, quote, misbehave, in other words, advocate for basic human rights, or even eat the food in the fields that they were they were working on if they were hungry. So there has been a long and storied history of women being called crazy or all, you know, all the umbrella words for saying these things. So, so, and there's a historic memory we carry with us. So the first thing is you let yourself off the hook for that because, (laughs) because we, we pass on 
intergenerationally a lot of communication habits that we don't know are passing on. And the other thing is, if you made eye contact with them or looked at them and they weren't responding, that is really problematic. Mm-hmm. Because you were saying with your communication, hey, this isn't cool. They were already breaking the rules and they were saying, you know what? We don't care. Like my space is my space and your space is my space because they were, li- they were literally coming into your space with their words and deciding that it didn't matter. What you needed for your space doesn't matter. You know, I mean, if you want to say something in the movie, whisper in your own space. You don't have to go into somebody else's. And, you know, the, I mean, the other thing is the research shows that white people are more listened to when they advocate against racism with other white people. Uh, White people, unfortunately, do not listen to people of color when it comes to issues of race. Men do not listen to women as much as they listen to other men. So it would have been ideal (laughs) if your (laughs) husband had said something because they would have been more likely to listen. And I think we all intuitively know this as women. That is why when a man says something on our behalf, we're like, wow, you have magic voice. I wrote a couple of notes with what you just said. You said, do they have to talk? And the answer is absolutely not. And I think this is a communication failure that is so epic, which is that, and, and they've done research on this. We teach our young girls to be caretakers in their communication. And sometimes we caretake so much to our own detriment and that's a problem. But fundamentally, we should teach boys to caretake more and mm-hmm. girls to care for themselves more. And so what we had there was a meeting of two profoundly different communication styles clashing. Um, But my advice to you, if you would like it. Yes, please. (laughs) Is I find I statements are very helpful in situations like that. Mm -hmm. So instead of accusing them and saying, do a thing, because anyone who's doing that is already really going to have a defensive reaction anyway, because they're obviously not being very sensitive to other people is to say, I'm having trouble following the movie or I'm having trouble paying attention because then you're not saying you're a jerk. You're just saying, yo, you know, the sound you're making is making it hard for me. And then they have to be like, I don't care. Right. So they have to basically, as opposed to shush, in which case they could say, it's not a problem for you. And then you have to get in that conversation. You could preempt that by just saying, I'm having trouble uh, listening to the movie. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, And what you were saying before about sort of this inherited narrative, inherited narrative, (laughs) that part of me was a little bit afraid of saying something because I thought they could just say, you know, mind your own business, B. I don't know them and they don't care, right? So there's a little bit of an underlying fear that even though I don't think anybody has ever said that to me. But right. there's something that we inherit and absorb. Absolutely. That makes it it's a possibility. Mm-hmm. It's so powerful. And, and it's not just, you know, we have a hysterical, aggressive, abrasive, um, you know, all of those words that are in those umbrella words of those other words. And of course, women of color have it even more. We have the angry black woman stereotype. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the crazy Asian. We have the fiery Latinx and if you if you Google those racist tropes with the name of any celebrity in their category, you will be stunned at how many hits you get. 
stunned because it's such a great way to silence women, which is why I turned me and my two nieces into crazy feminist B superheroes at the end of that chapter. (laughs) Because I just thought, you know what? I'm not going to be afraid of those words anymore. We're going to turn them into superheroes. (laughs) Yes, that is so much of what I've seen. Uh, And I sort of trace it back like my first awareness of it was Eve Ensler and the vagina monologues. And that being such an underpinning premise of there are certain words we need to reclaim. Yes. And that's part of taking back our power. That's part of claiming our space. Yes. I mean, I, I always say someone's, I get the question a lot now is, well, what would you do if someone called you a B? You know, mm-hmm. my, my answer would be, you know what, you're correct. I do have an opinion on this. And I think that's what you're saying, but you may not call me that word. That's not your word to call me. Yeah. Because I, I call my girlfriends bees all the time. You know, I'll be like, hey, man, what's up? <laughs> we, we talk to each other all the time. And, but that's as, you know, we, there's a great, uh, Tanisi Coates has this great talk about the N word. And, mm-hmm. you know, he says, yeah. my girlfriends call each other, my, my wife's girlfriends call each other B all the time. I would not walk in there and be like, hey, B. Like my friend who's white says he's going to his quote white trash cabin. I would never walk up to him and say, hey, let's go to your white trash cabin. It's not my word. So why is it that there's so much hemming and hawing about white people not being able to say the N-word in rap? And I think it's similar. There are words that we can call each other that are Mm -hmm. our words to call each other in an empowered way that are not the words for other people. And that's okay. Yeah, such a great point and very timely. So I, gosh, so many different places we could go. I'm, I'm, I'm looking, I'm thinking about what I had wanted to ask you. And I guess, I guess I'd like to pivot a little bit. And I want to talk about something else that goes in that, you know, what we've learned is okay and not okay. And that's about interrupting Mm. because that feels like that's also one of those very, it's like a microaggression of sorts that women get used to. And, And I've experienced it even as sorry to put it this way, but like, if I'm the higher on the totem pole in the conversation, you know, I'm in some position of authority mm-hmm. and the man will still talk over me. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? And so I've, and, and I've experienced this with women too. You know, there are some women who, who do that. Mm-hmm. And what I was taught, and I don't know if this is true or not, maybe you can back me up is that women interrupt and, and to some degree, like finish one another's sentences as a way of connecting. Like it's seen as, you know, we're sort of bonding here. I get you. Mm-hmm. And it's not always interpreted that way in other contexts, sort of like what you were talking about with certain words. Mm-hmm. Is there truth to that? Like, am I, am I just making that up or is there something about that? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I just actually wrote an article about this on Medium and uh, I call it friend interrupting. <laughs> Aha. <laughs> so when I'm with my girlfriends, we finish each other's sentences all the time and we would not sit there and wait politely. And also, you know, I'm Italian and I'm Jewish, you know, so we like we are an interrupting people. My Italian side of the family, you know, if we're playing bocce at a reunion, I don't know if anyone will get more than three words into their sentence, but there is an equal power dynamic. And I think uh, the problem yeah. comes in when you have a vertical power dynamic when one person is more powerful than the other. And I don't just mean in the boss position, but I mean, in society, then there's a training that comes in for one person to shut up. And so my rule is if I have more power and privilege than somebody, I will not interrupt them because they will stop talking. 
And that is what's really, really important with interrupting to, to pay attention to. And also who is the person? So mm-hmm. I have, I'm, as I said, quite extroverted. Uh, and I have a lot of very introverted friends and they don't interrupt as much as I do. So I have to be very cognizant if I want to hear them that I can't interrupt the way I would with my extroverted friends where we're fighting to <laughs> finish sentences and we're okay with that. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I think that's, that's really an important distinction to make. There's also white interrupting, white interrupting, whereas they, they, you know, white people tend to interrupt people of color much more. And it doesn't matter if the person of color is our boss, white people still interrupt and male white people interrupt the most. Um, and, and what I want to stress with this, because I think it's so important. I had a reporter ask me the other day, is this some book about hating men? <laughs> There's actually no connection to women being empowered and hating men. They have nothing to do with each other. In fact, right. I think it's better for all of us if we are all empowered equally. But uh, I think that when you have interrupting, you're wanting to be very, very cognizant of how that interrupting is going, who's interrupting who, and all of those other things. And it's just something you kind of have to keep an eye on. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there's some mutual awareness that needs to be there, both on the part of the talker and the part of the listener. Right. And and so what I would say, and I think I just interrupted you and I apologize. No, is, no, go um, for it. The, so what I like to stress is this is training. So they've actually done research that little girls are taught to stop interrupting at a much higher rate than little boys. So it is not that the little boys are taught to interrupt. It's that when little girls interrupt, the parents say, don't do that. Stop interrupting. And the boys don't get that training. So it's not that boys are these horrible people who go out with this mission to interrupt. Not at all. They literally have different communication training. And a lot of what we need to do as parents, and I will say, when I started researching that, I thought, oh, wow, I absolutely told my daughter not to interrupt more than I told my sons. No Mm -hmm. question. So, you know, part of what we want to do as parents is make sure that we are teaching our children equally to not interrupt so that we can all be respectful of each other. Yeah. Nice. And you do give a little bit of a formula for if you are the person being interrupted on how to navigate that. Would you give us that in a nutshell? Yeah, sure. Um, So, well, it's a several step process and it works best if there's an ally because often the visual cues will help Mm -hmm. a lot. Um, so the first thing you do is you just start talking more loudly. So you just keep talking like this when the person interrupts you and you don't stop. <laughs> if that doesn't work, you put up one finger and you smile. And I, women always say, I can't believe you're telling women to smile. There are two ways to go about interruption. One is what I call mortal combat because I'm a nerd <laughs> where you just say, you're interrupting me. I need you to stop. But then the whole conversation becomes about how aggressive you are and how you made a big deal out of nothing. So you have to be ready for that. If you just want to stop the interruption, that is what this technique is. And so I call this using the force because I am a nerd. Um, so you put one finger up and you say, you know, and you smile and you say, just, just a sec, or I like to finish. Hold on a sec. And you just do that. And then you keep talking. The next time you put up a, a hand without like the for, a la the force, you know, with one hand up yeah. without, and you say, you know, I'd like to finish or please wait. So a little bit less. And then the third time by then you have gained social capital because you have visually cued the people around you that you're being interrupted. So by then usually an ally or what I like to call now a co-conspirator will have jumped in and said, wait a minute, 
you're interrupting Eliza and it almost never gets to this. But the last one is you put both hands up, palms toward the other person, you drop your smile Mm -hmm. and you say, let me finish, you know, or I'm speaking. And it's so funny because the step two with one palm and a smile is exactly what Kamala Harris did in the debate. Yeah, I was just thinking of her. It's very powerful because what it does is it builds allyship around you by visually cueing people you're being interrupted so you don't have to go to that step. And then the other thing is you've earned the capital at the end to say, I'm done with this. And if you do that, no one says, oh, she's overreacting because you've already done these three warm things and they have not heard you. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. Well, that leads me to my last question, which is somewhat related because I can see the more I'm interrupted, the angrier I'm going to get. <laughs> it's going to be a little bit of a, a thing, but, but I'm also thinking of anger in general. Um, mm-hmm. And women's anger, you know, it obviously expresses itself very differently than men. And then depending on where, like I'm thinking about contrasting the Women's March in 2017 with January 6th and the Capitol riots and this different way in which anger is expressed and Mm -hmm. not to generalize, but I'm probably safe in generalizing that it was, of of course, predominantly women in the Women's March and predominantly men on January 6th. There Mm -hmm. were some women there, but it was, as far as I could tell, it was men, angry Mm men. So how can women be in touch with their anger in a productive way that helps us to claim the space that's ours and, mm-hmm. and to affect change and influence? Well, I want to preface this by saying my book is a guidebook. So what I really tried to do was have, it's sort of like the dangerous book for girls. I don't know if you remember that or the daring book for boys. I think that's what they were called, but you can literally go to the index of my book and look up posture or look up you know, anti-racism or look up uh, sexual harassment or, you know, everything's in there. So I tried to provide resources because I couldn't go fully into everything. So I do want to say one of the best resources for this is a book called Rage Becomes Her. And I Mm. use that a lot. And I, and I recommend, I really like to shout out to other people doing really amazing work. So please check out Rage Becomes Her. It is really an excellent book. And it goes back to the crazy feminist B thing, which is, if you are angry, you are crazy. And so that can label you as a dangerous person. And so people are taught to stuff their anger. And I think women's anger is so important. And, and I want to kind of do a thought experiment here. Imagine you're watching a movie and a man has just lost the love of his life. And we're in love with this couple and the woman breaks his heart. And he's in his room and he sits down on his bed and then he just starts to boil over and suddenly he screams in rage and like throws something across the room and then he smashes something. And you're like, oh my God, he loved her so much. Look at this reaction. He's, he's, he's a broke, you know, he's so angry because he's just so full of, you know, upsetness about this situation. If you take a woman and put her in that same situation, she's crazy imagine a woman screaming in rage and then throwing things that would be the precursor to her going into a mental institution in the movie. Mm-hmm. So we don't allow women to show anger, but anger is our, our, I call it our compasses way of saying, this is not okay. What's happening right now. And if we stuff that, then we are not able to be in touch with, this is not okay. 
So it's so important when we feel anger to say, oh, good. This is my compass telling me something's not right. And I'm going to express this to this person so they understand what's happening is not okay with me. And that doesn't mean you have to scream and yell, but I'll give you a quick example of how powerful anger can be. So I was on a a train once, and this was during the height of the anti-immigrant sentiment. And I was in New York City. It was a packed train, a subway car. Back in the day, we called the train. And there was a white man just started randomly screaming at a young, uh, younger man, a Latinx man, looked like he was in his 20s, just yelling at him, tell him to go back to his country and blah, 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 blah. And there were five people between me and him. I approximated. It was very packed. And I didn't know what to do. I looked across from me and I saw this older Asian woman just weeping, just silently weeping. And I thought, this is just, I can't do this. And my family has a history of the Holocaust. And, you know, if you're silent, you're complicit. So, and so I, and I'd done research on intervention. So I looked at the man and I thought, okay, I have a head injury. If he hits me, I'm gone, but there are five people between us. So I think I'm okay because it's so packed. So I looked at him and I summoned all my anger (laughs) and I said, stop it. That's enough. And he looked at me kind of shocked. And I said, that's enough. And he stopped. And then this other guy turned around because all the white people had turned away from them, pretending it wasn't happening, turned back at him and said, yeah, man, that's not cool. And then a bunch of people jumped in and suddenly he was shut down because what they found is you just need one person to jump in. I was scared, but I was also angry. And if I hadn't been able to summon how furious I was, I would not have been able to do that. And I didn't scream. I didn't yell, but I let him know I was very angry. (laughs) And anger is a powerful thing when funneled properly and women really need to use it more. Yeah, that's a beautiful example of that. And thank you. Thank you retroactively for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's one of the scariest things. And, and that's part of allyship. And I believe you said ally or co-conspirator. Co-conspirator. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And modeling that for others. And my hope would be that anybody that witnessed you doing that feels empowered to do the same when they find themselves in that same situation, because they will. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that I did do a safety check first. If I had been two feet closer to him, I wouldn't have done it, but I had five people between me and him. And I knew, I knew, I looked at the situation and said, these five people are not going to let this guy jump over here and beat me up. And so, you know, you do want to make sure you're safe, but if you're safe, you you should, yeah. Summon Mm -hmm. your anger. Yeah. Don't put yourself at risk. And if you discern it's safe enough there is a bit of sticking out of your neck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Eliza, thank you so much. Um, this has been a super energizing and rich discussion <laughs> with so many wonderful takeaways. Tell us about your book when it launches. I, I think this is uh, being posted just after the launch. So tell us about where we can uh, get our own copy. Uh, you can go to any place bookstores sell books. <laughs> you can get one on any platform. You can go to my website. I always feel like a QVC person here, but you can go to elizavancourt.com. Uh, that's elizavancourt.com. There's no <laughs> U in Van Court, V-A-N-C-O-R-T. Uh, and if you go to the book page uh, and scroll down, I have links to every single place. Um, I, I do want to say that we've had a very hard time getting this book out. A lot of the women reporters have been very strongly behind it. And then sometimes the men who have to green light, green light the story have 
nixed it and said they didn't understand it and why it was important. So uh, it's going to be woman to woman buying this book. That's how this book is going to get out there and ally co-conspirator man and men and people of every gender. So and we've had some yeah. wonderful male co-conspirators who've been helping as well. So awesome. um, please tell your friends about it if you like it. And um, also, I love talking about this stuff. So if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, feel free to, if you read the book, to ask me any question that you want. If you'd like a signed book plate, just let me know. I This is one of the gifts of this experience has been able to connect with so many people as I am an extrovert. So don't be shy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. She says to the very introverted woman. <laughs> has an extrovert streak, but, um, but talking to extroverts helps me to summon that up. I think you're um, pretty awesome. So. Yeah, thanks. And it sounded like just real quick that you're also on Medium because you mentioned writing a Medium post so people can look for you there as well. Yes, please. I love being on Medium because I get to just write whenever I want and don't have to go through anybody. So yeah. And yeah. actually you can look for my story this week in People Magazine. Awesome. Um, online. So, and it tells All my right. full story, which is quite the story. It's pretty incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. We only got to hear just like that little sliver of it. And that already is an incredible story. So, um, so yeah, there will be links to all of this on the episode webpage and I'm excited to be sharing this and thank you so much. And again, congratulations and best wishes for a hugely successful launch and not just the launch, but that there is a sustained interest in this and that the conversation keeps on going. Well, thank you. I, I truly had a wonderful time and it was just a delight talking to you. So thank you so much thank for having you. me on your wonderful show. Thank you. As I spoke with Eliza, my mind went to something I learned from another podcast, Hidden Brain, about the hot-cold empathy gap. The episode was titled, In the Heat of the Moment, How Intense Emotions Transform Us. I mentioned it way back in episode 59 of How Can I Say This? The idea is that when we are asked to consider a challenging situation and what we would do if we were in that situation, we almost always assume that we would do the right thing whether that be leaving, staying, speaking up, biting our tongue, saying yes, or saying no. We find it hard to imagine that we would make any other choice. But then when we hear of someone else being put in the same situation and that they did the opposite of what we think we would have done, we think, what on earth were they doing? Why didn't they just leave or stay or say no or say yes or speak up or bite their tongue? We can't believe that they didn't, quote unquote, do the right thing. And we make judgments and have little empathy for the consequences that person suffered because of their choice. That is the hot, cold empathy gap. See, what we forget is that we can be brave and noble when we're in a cold state, when the choice is only hypothetical and there's no immediate danger or decision to make. But when we're in a hot state, when the hypothetical becomes real and the danger or decision is immediate, it's not always easy to do what we said we were going to do. Sometimes we even end up doing the complete opposite. We say yes when we should have said no. We stay silent when we should have spoken up. Now, do you see why I mentioned this? I experienced that hot-cold empathy gap firsthand. If you had asked me two weeks ago, you're in a movie and someone close to you is talking and you find it super distracting, what would you do? I would have answered, I'd find a way to politely ask them to be quiet. That's pretty easy. I can even imagine myself doing it. But 
as we heard during my conversation with Eliza, when I found myself in that exact situation, I didn't speak up. I decided it was easier to move back a few rows. So where does the need for empathy come in? It's when I reflect on the way I felt about how I handled that situation. There's a need for empathy and compassion turned inward towards me. Understanding that hot, cold gap, I can recognize that there's a reason why I made the choice that I did in the moment. That releases any feelings I have that are about guilt or shame or like I failed in some way. And instead, I can shift that and see it as a learning opportunity. First, I can consider that specific situation and in hindsight, practice making a different choice so that next time I'll feel better prepared to follow through. Because instead of it being hypothetical, I can actually put myself back into that real life situation. And like I said, sort of do this mental dress rehearsal. I might talk to my husband and devise a plan, such as if somebody's bothering me and it's safe to do so, and I really appreciate that Eliza brought that up, that I can commit to addressing it first. And he's got my back if my requests aren't met. And this is not to rescue me, but it's in the spirit of partnership, because I would do the same for him. I might even decide that because it's not safe, or maybe I just don't have the energy, that it's okay to just move. The point is that I would be moving, knowing full well what I was doing, and that it was my choice. That night at the movies, I honestly felt like they were forcing me to move because they were being rude. I shouldn't have to tell them to stop talking. I felt resentful and I felt annoyed. And that was the energy that I took with me when I switched seats. The difference about it being my choice is that I stop giving them power. I'm instead acting on what will serve me best, and I can move based on that, which is more about my needs and taking care of myself than about storming off in a huff. What I would do and what you would do might be very different. The point is to consider it for yourself, and if and when you're in the situation that you imagine, be kind to yourself, no matter what choice you make. If your imagined response matches the reality, that's fabulous. If it doesn't, practice self-empathy and reflect on your choices in a compassionate way. And please remember this for others too. If you find yourself quick to judge others' choices in challenging situations, take a step back and remember the hot-cold empathy gap. It's one way to bring a lot more space and grace into your relationships. So your call to action is to remember that, to remember the hot-cold empathy gap, and to you know, take that pause. Remember, we we heard about that from Alan Heyman uh, in the last episode, to pause and reflect for just a moment. Remember what you would do, what they would do in the same situation are different. And what they would do in a cold state is different than what actually happens when they're in a hot state. So remember that the next time you find yourself feeling quick to judge yourself or someone else because of their choices. 
I hope you've enjoyed this conversation and that you decide to share this episode with any friends, family members, or colleagues that you think might find it interesting. I also appreciate your reviews and ratings on whatever platform you find this podcast. And please subscribe and come back for future episodes. We have a lot of great interviews coming up. Be part of the movement to bring more courageous communication into the world. This is Beth Below, and you've been listening to How Can I Say This? Our podcast producer is Paul Messing, and our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thank you so much to Eliza for sharing her experiences and wisdom with us. I hope you got a lot out of it. And thank you for joining me today. And I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously. Courageously.